This is Birth Aloud Radio, where we challenge the status quo around that most basic human right, how, where, and with whom we are allowed to give birth. I'm your host and the founder of Birth Monopoly, Kristen Piscucci. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a special edition of Birth Aloud Radio. I'm Kristen Piscucci, your host, and I'm here with two doulas who are also members of our Know Your Rights community. Weirdly, we had we had actually planned to talk and do a podcast episode today way before all this stuff hit with COVID-19 and this pandemic that is sweeping the country and the globe. So we sort of adjusted our sights a little bit and thought that the most useful thing for everyone at this point, as we are seeing support being banned from birthing people in hospitals, we thought it would be handy to speak directly to the families who are being affected by this most. And since we've got me, um, an advocate who kind of sees what's going on around the country in different ways and teaches parents about their rights, and we have Mary Halliday and Lisa Gold Rubin, who are doulas who work directly with families and attend births in hospitals, we thought, well, why don't we just talk directly to families about what they need to know and what Lisa and Mary are telling their clients right now as far as how to, you know, how to prepare and maybe what to expect when they when they get there. So without any further ado, let me introduce our guests. I will start with Mary Halliday who is with us from Spokane, Washington. Just say hi and tell us a little tiny bit about yourself, please. Hi. First off, thank you for having me. I am a birth doula and a childbirth educator. I have a little boy. He's two. And we have a bunch of animals. And we love snowboarding and being outdoors. And I just, I love serving the families I serve. Awesome. Hi, Lisa. You're here from the Burlington, Vermont area, covered in snow right now. <laughs> we are in the midst of all this. It's really, it's like the world is blanketed in white, which is kind of soothing, I have to say. So thank you so much for having us with you today. We, I know we both really appreciate it, and I love your work, and I think what you do is extraordinarily important for what we're doing out there in the world. So I am originally a born and bred New Yorker who, who, who moved up to Vermont just a few years ago. And I like to say I was a doula before the word even existed. Been in practice about 35 years and also a certified childbirth educator for that long. And about 10 years ago, I became a virtual doula, kind of translating my work that way. And never, ever ever did I think that it would be so handy at a time like this. I just never anticipated that the entire world would need to become a virtual world where everybody's helping everybody without, you know, physically being able to be present. It's, it's mind bending. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because I'm not a doula, but in some ways, I have doula'd people virtually. A few years back when I was at Improving Birth and we would respond to these kind of emergency calls from people who were either in the hospital or, you know, on their way to the hospital or, you know, I ended up talking people through things on the phone and they were in some pretty dire, you know, usually it was, it was, a, it was kind of a, it was an emergency situation. <laughs> It's really, really interesting because I thought, I thought, yeah, I mean, I'm not a doula, but I actually have weirdly doula people virtually and it's different. It's different. It's very different from being in person. Um, it's a very different feeling to be kind of on the end of a device and unable to see what's happening and all you have are your ears, really. Yeah, it's a, it's a different animal, but wow, it can be really, it can be really powerful it can be very, very helpful to someone. So lifeline, it really is a virtual lifeline, right? Mm -hmm. um, I was really interested, Mary was talking before about what she was 
telling her client who's about to have a, a home birth VBAC. And I was saying, I, I think it would be so great to share that with parents so that they can hear what you're saying and ha- how you're helping people go through this. Yeah. Mary, do you want to kind of fill us yeah. in? You said you've got a client who... Yeah, it's just uncertain times for all our clients right now. I think everyone is asking, what if you're not there? And we've had situations where a doula has been asked to leave in the middle of supporting her client because the policy has changed, you know, in the middle. So it is kind of scary times for our clients. So I always tell my clients to prepare for everything and we hope that we don't use it. But if we don't prepare for it, then that's sometimes what happens. And then we're like, oh, wait. (laughs) So with this client, she's a VBAC and planning a home birth. And I kind of did dig into the psychology a little bit. Having doulaed for a while, I noticed that women just in general really struggle to speak up for themselves. I was going to an appointment recently with a client and she had complained about something about the temperature of the room or something just silly. And the nurse took it really seriously, which I appreciated. She was like, oh, let me grab you a blanket. Or she was very accommodating. And my client was immediately apologizing for stating any kind of need or want. She's like, oh, I don't want her to think that I don't like her. And then it went into the emotional, like, oh, because we're saying we don't like this. Now we think that we don't like the person, that this is a personal thing. And I see people do that a lot. And I, I try to help them to separate that just because you're saying your needs and telling them what's okay and what's not okay. It's not a personal reflection on the person. That makes so, a lot of sense. I think a lot of us are really socialized that way. That Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. We grow up like that. And especially women, I think. Taking up so, space. Like, yeah. don't take up any space. Don't take up any space. Yeah. I, I was definitely taught to be well-mannered. I mean, I grew up in England, so um, manners were extremely important to my family. And <laughs> I would say that just I now help my mom to say things like, I really hate this haircut. Could you fix it? <laughs> Because she'll just leave a salon and look terrible and be like, oh, it's so nice. Thank you. And she'll tip them. And she's so like very British and polite. Yeah. I think we've all done that. Like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So kind of changing those patterns because, you know, they're patterns in our brain and it's hard to rewire that and to ask our clients to do that in the middle of their birth. I think is so, so hard. And that's why I'm a strong believer that doulas are essential advocates for their clients. But with everything going on, I told her that first off, we just need to practice saying no at home with small things that aren't big and scary, like a doctor coming in the room. I know her. She's very sweet and like accommodating person. And she already kind of told me I'm really bad at speaking out for myself. So I said, you know, if your husband warms you up some soup and you're sitting there eating your soup and you're like, you know, it's not really hot enough, but you're just sitting there eating it anyway because you don't want to make him get up and go do it again. Just stuff like that. Practice saying, actually, this isn't okay. I don't want it like this. Could you go make it hotter? Thank you. I have a need. Yeah. Just expressing a need, really. Yeah. Right. I'm like, you don't have to be nasty about it. Just thank you. I need it differently. So I encourage her to practice that at home just with small things. And then with going into the hospital, we kind of talked about last resort. So I was thinking about specifically a transfer scenario but I know a lot of doulas are kind of counseling their clients to stay home as long as possible so that they can support them at home before they go to the hospital and I've noticed that in both scenarios whether it's a transfer from home birth or they're going to the hospital very late on like they're arriving and she's pushing kind of thing 
you get swarmed by nurses and it's very kind of chaotic almost. And it doesn't happen every time, but in my experience, it happens more often if, if you're further along in your labor or you're being transferred. So I kind of helped them to understand ways to slow down what was happening because it can feel very overwhelming without having your doula there to say, let's slow down, let's have five minutes. So this is where I kind of gave her like a cue word to cue her husband in because I know that if you're going through contractions, you're not going to be able to really speak for yourself or like say your wishes. I mean, if you can, that's amazing. I mean, I know some women that like snap out of it and like tell the staff what they need and then go right back in. But I don't think that's super common. Can I just expand on that a little bit? Because yeah, we hear a lot about people needing to advocate for themselves and needing to use their own voices. We know that the reality is that for a lot of people, when you're in labor, you're, you're physically not able to do that. And I personally had this experience and I just want to share this with families who are just maybe, you know, don't even understand what that means when people mm-hmm. say you can't or you should, or you can, or, you know, <laughs> yeah. all those things. So obviously birth is different for everyone. Everyone will have a different experience. My personal experience was that when I was later in labor, in active labor, you know, past six centimeters, I was hyper aware of everything that was going on around me. I could tell you where everyone was in the room, like very sensitive to every little change in the environment. And I also felt like I was at the end of a long tunnel Hmm. between my mouth and my brain. I could think very clearly, but I could not get my brain to make that come out in words. I specifically remember, you know, when I first got into the hospital and I had come from my provider's office, which was outside of the hospital, and she had checked me and I was six or seven centimeters at that point. Mm -hmm. And when I got there, I remember a nurse asking me for my social security number. I just remember being like, kind of like in labor, in contractions and having this whole thought process is she really asking me for my social security number right now? Can't she see that I'm in labor? Can't she see that this is a contraction? Isn't this on my paperwork? Why on earth is she asking me this? You know, I had this whole train of thought, but like couldn't actually say any of those things. And it's hard to describe that feeling because I think it's a feeling that you really only have in labor. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so different Mm -hmm. of like, I am super hyper-conscious. I just can't actually communicate the words out of my mouth to, you know, say whatever. So I just remember it took a whole lot of energy. I had to go through this whole thought process of actually, what's the easiest way to say this to her? What are the fewest words I could possibly use? And how do I do this so that she will stop asking me questions? I remember thinking, okay, you know what I need to do? I need to tell her to talk to my support person for all questions. I don't want to answer any questions right now. I don't know how long this took. It felt like it took like five minutes. It probably took like seconds. But I eventually said, ask her, okay? That was the end result of this entire thought process. <laughs> and thankfully, my support person, who was my sister-in-law, immediately stepped in, knew exactly what was happening, and said to the nurse, kind of aggressively, you can ask me any questions. I have all her paperwork. I have her power of attorney. I have all of her things. Kind of like, leave her alone. But it just really struck me after the fact how indispensable that communication had been that she knew where I was going. We had had so many conversations before labor, knew what I was thinking. And I think it was just very obvious to anyone who was observing that I was in labor and didn't need to answer questions about my social security number. Mm. So I just wanted to kind of describe that to people. Also, because of this sort of myth that laboring people can't make decisions or aren't able to taken information and make decisions or know what they need or know what they want. 
just because you can't talk about it doesn't mean that you don't have feelings and needs and wants. And that's all the more room for a partner, assuming we've got a partner to step in and kind of anticipate that stuff. And I would say the same thing to nurses and other providers who are in hospitals is like, this is going to be, I think, kind of an educational thing for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a time to really step up and start tuning into the needs of the pregnant person because it's going to be a whole different kind of support that's needed if they're not getting one-on-one continuous support from someone else. So anyway, I just wanted to tell that little anecdote so people have an idea of what one person's experience was. I think that represents what a lot of people experience is that sort of, it takes a lot of energy to form sentences (laughs) when you're in labor. And we really ask in childbirth classes and stuff, we ask you to go into that place and then they get to the hospital and it's like, no, we need you out. We need you thinking. We need you talking. And that's a really hard transition for a lot of people. I'm so glad you were able to articulate that. Lisa, did you have anything to add to that? It occurs to me to hear us talking about this. My last thing is to heap more fear onto people because everybody's operating out of this place of fear and scarcity in terms of support and all of this unknown. And it is the worst thing. We want people to be feeling now that they're on the verge of having babies, right? But it also occurs to me that the nurses at the hospital are so overwhelmed with what they're doing. I know here at the medical center at UVM right now, they're still allowing one partner, no doulas, no volunteer doulas. It almost feels like it's a double-edged sword, right? The nurses are too overwhelmed now. You know, they have trouble with one-on-one support <laughs> with a doula and the partner mm-hmm. in the room, which is why the advent of doulas came to be, right? That nurses had to pivot and weren't able to do that kind of care. So now more than ever, I feel that it's a really important thing to keep coming back to what people know about themselves and how exactly, as you're saying, how do they get the care that they know they need? How do they express what they need? Which is what you're, this is such a brilliant point, Mary, is that we teach them in childbirth classes to really dig in and find that space, whatever that looks like, whether they're cursing like sailors through labor, you know, whatever they do is what they do. But then to have it interrupted with somebody who you don't know, especially if partners aren't being allowed in the room and it's just the nurses, this feels so completely against nature. And we're, we're already fighting nature because we have to implement doula support. <laughs> we had to implement it so long ago to fill in in the system where it wasn't working. And so I want to say to parents and what I've been saying to parents is just keep going back in to what you know about yourself first. You've got to start there. And then in the same way, I really encourage people to operate out of that space of their own expertise. It's to look at these same circumstances and explore how can I manage this? How can I make this work in a way that's going to work for me? You know, it's just another more dramatic version of when things don't go according to plan. They are so not going according to plan right now. So how can we help people look inside and figure out what are their priorities about what they need and to fill in the blanks around that and to ask for help from us as the community of professionals and family and friends and people they know who are getting information, which changes, just like you said, Miri, in an instant, where hospitals are having doulas leave or partners in the middle of birth. I mean, this is incomprehensible. So I feel like I've been saying to people who've been contacting me, afraid that just this kind of thing would happen, the choices right now, and they have to re-examine those choices based on what they're feeling each day do they want to stay at a hospital where they feel like that's threatening? Do they feel fine about virtual support? You know, even though they haven't had it before, they really do know what that's like if they've called their childbirth educator or their doula in between meeting them. But take a look. If you feel like that hospital is too 
insecure place for you and you have another option, especially if you're in an urban area, I'm hearing from home birth midwives that they are completely swamped, that everybody's considering a home birth now, but that isn't necessarily a safe choice either because you you may not have experience with that midwife and it's irresponsible to take on more than a certain number of clients monthly. So some home birth midwives are able to accommodate people, but home birth isn't right for everybody. This is this part of going in. And, you know, are you willing to travel even in the bubble of your car to get somewhere else, a hospital that will take you in? Is your provider able to refer you to a colleague whose hospital is still at this time having partners and or doulas available? The part about advocacy is when you're in labor, the hardest thing would be to say, my husband's not leaving or my partner's not leaving in the middle of birth. If you can't even recite your (laughs) your social security security number, number, (laughs) how are you advocating to have your partner stay? You know, it reminds me of the old days when it was just happening where partners were allowed in the birth room. And, you know, in the 60s and 70s, they would handcuff themselves to the hospital beds. (laughs) It was like, it was absurd, but it it really was, we're not leaving. And so you see, we're we're really not leaving. And, um, well, you just gave me an idea, Lisa. (laughs) Should we be be mailing out handcuffs? I think we might. It might not be a bad idea for our clients and their partners, but the idea of practicing what you would do, thinking in advance, always finding out what your options are in this moment today. And when you hear new information, following up with what other options are there that are going to leave you feeling the most secure when you are giving birth. Meaning, how will I navigate it if my partner or my doula are not allowed to be with me because the hospital's limiting? Do I switch hospitals? Do I find a different provider? Do I explore home birth? Where am I going to feel the most secure and set myself up as well as I can given who I am, right? You could say home birth feedback to one person and they'd look at you like you were out of your mind, right? And you could say to another person, home birth feedback she feels great about it, but you really have to work on the transfer agreement and where she'd be going because coming into an ER in labor as a home birth transfer, that's a whole kettle of fish right there. So how can you set them up, you know, to practice that transfer in advance and know some of those details? Who are they going to be seeing? Can they establish a relationship with a physician ahead of time, right? So they're not coming in through the ER. These are kinds of things that I've been telling people And to really know that virtual support, I tell people, you know, in many ways, it's the same as if I'm with you. When you go into the hospital and you're FaceTiming, I ask you for an opportune moment to introduce me to the nurse who's on your shift at this time and let us have a conversation so we can all be in the room together. When your OB or midwife comes in, please introduce me when it's a good time so that everybody's aware that there's this other person who's there who isn't physically there. Those are awesome tips. They're just ideas, right? How do you keep strategizing in the moment predicated on what you know about you and trying to match that up to the circumstances that exist? And we're asking a lot of our moms and we're asking a lot of our partners and dads out there right now. I know I'm really pushing them to stand up for their wives and be their advocates at the moment because... They can play a huge role right now if they are allowed. Right. Um, it's almost a word you don't want to use. I know. In front of Kristen, right? You, I hate using that that's word. That's why I had to try to find another word quickly. I do the same thing to myself, if that makes you feel any better. Like occasionally I'll start to say it, it and I'm like, oh, I probably shouldn't say that in front of myself. <laughs> yeah. But I'm actually finding myself using it from time to time right now in these circumstances, which I've been really surprised to hear that word come out of my mouth or almost come out of my mouth. Because other than like circumstances like this, I do not use that word when it comes Mm -hmm. to birth and people's choices and wants and needs. So that tells you something about how overwhelming it is for everyone. 
Yeah. In that situation where that doula was asked to leave mid-birth, the whole L&D floor was advocating for her to stay, but it came from higher up, I guess, admin or something. In those circumstances, Kristen, what would you be able to tell our clients in a circumstance like that? What are the legalities behind that or is legal out the window in face of the pandemic? Well, I think every situation is individual and it's Mm -hmm. kind of not prudent to say everybody should do this or everybody should do that. I think probably the most important thing is that you have prepared and had the conversation ahead of time with your clients. Mm -hmm. This is a possibility. What are we going to do if this happens? Because Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what, if the doula is advocating for herself to stay and the parents are not, well, Mm -hmm. that's ridiculous. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's ridiculous for a few reasons. It has to be the client making the choice and it has to be the client and I'm including the partner or support person in that doing the advocating saying, I hired this person. I want them here. I have a right to support. I want them here. I would say preparation is probably the most important thing. And how are we going to handle this? And also taking into account the impact of that event on the labor itself you don't know ahead of time how it's going to impact you as the birthing person. I do know of a doula having to, you know, being asked to leave in the middle of a labor. It was several years ago. It was before this situation, but it was really traumatic for the woman who was giving birth. And I remember that doula saying to me, you know, I felt like I had more room to advocate to stay, but I could see how traumatic it was for my client that this conversation was even happening, that she was having to deal with the conflict and the tension. And she was like, I felt like my client needed me to leave, even though my client didn't want me to leave. In that moment, my presence was causing trauma because of the reception I was getting. So I do feel like in that case, they weren't expecting that at all that was out of the blue that the doula was asked to leave. And there were totally different circumstances related to that. But I think in this case, that's going to be the most important thing is that preparation ahead of time. And, you know, that, that helps take away some of the fear, you know, like Mary said, having any preparation that something is a possibility is going to be better than just having something sprung on someone out of nowhere with no, you know, with no planning for it whatsoever. Yeah. So that's what I would say is, and it's going to be according to the comfort level and the needs of the people going in. And I will also say that that is equally important because everybody does have different needs. There Mm -hmm. are couples who will say, oh man, you know, I wanted my doula to be there. I'm so disappointed, but I trust my provider. You know, it's a great hospital. It's a great team. And I think we'll be okay. And I'm glad, you know, she'll still be able to support me virtually. I wish it were different, but this is what it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's one response and that's great. And then there will be people who will say, I cannot give birth without my doula. I have a, a trauma history. I have an anxiety issue. You know, there, there's so many different things. English isn't my first language. And I know that going in, I'm already going to have an extra difficulty communicating with people. The the staff's perception of me is already going to be difficult. And I feel like, you know, the level of need is different for different people. And I think it's really legitimate for some people to say, I need my doula. I really need my doula there. And that might be what we would consider a psychological need or an emotional need, but birth is a psychological and emotional event as well. And we know how much those two things can impact the progress and the progression of birth. So it might be a different calculation for everybody, but I think, you know, the one thing that we can focus on that is within our control is that preparation ahead of time. Totally. Yeah. And planning for different scenarios. Here's what, here's what might happen. Yeah. I think that knowing your client is key in that, you know, you have to know who your clients are and have really built up their relationship prenatally because like you said, Kristen, it 
we can't, we can't take it personally. Like if someone doesn't feel like they need us there, then awesome. Like you go, but there are going to be clients who are going to say, I refuse. I'm going to have this baby in the lobby unless my doula comes with me. And I've just kind of noticed some people kind of criticizing doulas because they're kind of wanting to be there for their clients and saying, well, why didn't you like prep them? They should be able to, you know, get in there and do their thing without you. You should have prepped them well enough for that. And it's kind of like, well, everyone is so different. And like you said, some people have trauma and that relationship with their doula is their lifeline. And we need to like fully own that, that we are extremely important to our clients and not kind of shirk that responsibility. But in the same way, Mary, I'm taking Kristen's point as well. It's so personal. And once we've talked to clients and explained what the circumstance possibilities are and prepared them, what their options would be in all of those different circumstances, then we have to leave it to them, right? To make a determination, what is going to give them personally the most comfort. And whomever is saying to you, shouldn't you have prepared them well enough that they can labor on their own? It's only a small part of a doula's. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't, I haven't seen anyone say that, scope but, of work. but I mean, yeah. that's an odd argument to me because then it's like, well, then what's a doula for? Why would, would anyone exactly. ever need a doula if right. <laughs> they can just prepare you to go in and do it yourself? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to the age old doula issue with advocacy, I think is what getting at there. That's a great point that there are doulas who don't believe that they are really advocates. Although this time in our history, we'll really bring that to the fore, won't it? Especially if we're trying to help people advocate for themselves, for partners to be in the room because we can be there with them without being physically there virtually. But to to not be able to have their partners there is unfathomable. I think this is where the Know Your Rights course really has helped me so much be able to explain to my clients, okay, you need to use this language if this is happening. This is who you need to call in the hospital if this is happening. These are your last resort measures. And knowing that is like the backbone. I mean, it really gives us confidence to be able to instill in our clients, you know, these are your rights. I use it since taking the course with all my clients. And I can't imagine kind of navigating this situation without having that information. I completely agree. It's really changed the way I too work on advocacy and helping support people to know what their rights are and giving them all of the information, Kristen, that you've provided for us to be the foundation for why they can say what they need around protocol and administration. What I really wish now is we could find those same structural and legal arguments for partners. Can we find a statute where who talks about partners? You know, without getting like too far off the topic, you know, I see that the same things apply. One of the that the Know Your Rights course, which is primarily for birth professionals, starts out with a discussion of human rights in childbirth. And I'll talk about that just a minute right now, because this is important for birthing. This is critical, actually, for birthing people to know, which is that all of our law, the law of sort of what we call civilized nations, it's ostensibly built on a framework of human rights. And human rights belong to you, whether or not the law supports them, whether or not people acknowledge them. (laughs) You know, I think it's complicated because emergencies do call for limitations on personal freedoms. There is no question of that. Quarantining people to their homes is a limitation on personal freedoms. I think what we see in this particular situation with childbirth, though, is a real misunderstanding about the needs of pregnant people and what birth, what birth is, 
what it requires, what makes it safe, what leads to healthier outcomes. You know, what I've said a couple of times over the last week or so is there are many things in the hospital where it doesn't matter if you have a support person. It's nice to have a support person, but it doesn't impact the success of the procedure. If you're there to have your broken leg set or your appendectomy, it's nice to have a loved one holding your hand or comforting you or encouraging you, but it doesn't really meaningfully impact whether or not your leg sets properly or the success of that surgery. It's different for birth. It does matter. It does matter how safe your birth is, how safe you feel and how well supported mm-hmm. you are impacts the safety of your birth. Mm-hmm. And so when we see sweeping policies about banning visitors, I think this makes a lot of public health sense to protect healthcare workers when we can remove that support without impacting the care that patients are getting. But that's different in labor and delivery because the support impacts the safety of the birth. And when I say support, I mean partners and and doulas Mm -hmm. and other support people. But it's also because, quite frankly, we don't have a very good track record in our maternity care system. We have so many existing problems that support people and professional support people are filling in these cracks right now and have been for years. If you are a black person, a person of color, someone who doesn't speak English as a first language, someone who is a person of size, a teenager, unmarried, you know, there are so many, so many different layers to this that we know that your treatment is not going to be as safe and isn't going to be as good across the board, taken, taken at a population level, right? And we've got a lot of good research to show that for certain populations. For other populations, it's definitely more anecdotal, but we all know this to be true. People who are doing this work on a daily basis and are in the trenches know that this is true. So to speak kind of to what Lisa, I think you mentioned something earlier about like, you know, this is really just like showing us the cracks. (laughs) What we know is that these things that we have put in place that people have set up over the years to fill in these cracks, when that is just like completely removed, it's like, oh my goodness, here we are with the raw reality of the maternity care system. And we need those cracks filled in. It's not safe. I don't want this to be a big downer for people. I don't, I don't want people to feel disempowered and even more fearful. I do want to say though, that there's a reason I think that people are so adamant about having support and that professionals are so adamant about needing to be with their clients. This is not a matter of, oh, I'm going to lose some money (laughs) if I don't have a client. It's a real deep down knowing it's a relationship and it's a, It's a feeling of responsibility. For better or worse, doulas have been filling the cracks in the system for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I think we're definitely going to see what happens when those cracks aren't as filled. I'm so glad you reminded us about this piece in your course about birth rights and human rights and that you can't really separate them. And that's a really important piece that I want to bring to my clients about partners. For me as a doula, since I don't usually attend births in person anyway, I'm I'm typically always virtual. It's the way I work now. I want to be sure that I'm helping them make sure that if they're having a doula in the room with them, they they know all of this information that you've been generating and has been generated in the community of doulas. But I also would love to put something together for them about their partners because that's kind of the hidden terror, right? That they, if they can't have a doula and they can't have their partner, their human rights are being violated in birth. And that's a really important piece that you just reminded me of. And that that's a piece to bring to administration and to correlate that to outcomes because it isn't having an appendectomy. It's very different. Um, yeah, it's a rights issue and it's a, it's a safety issue. I'm going to look through all of that stuff from the course and try to put that together just as a paragraph for people about human rights in birth. 
and having a partner there affects their safety, impacts on their feeling of safety, which impacts on outcomes. Isn't that good, Mary? That's a really important part. Yeah, that's like huge. We just got a really good piece. Can we kind of refocus things back onto what we want parents to know? So I'm telling my clients right now that obviously not for everyone, their partner is going to be there. But for this scenario with my last client in our local hospitals, partners are still being allowed in. With that being said, I just really prep the partner to cue in to what she's telling him through her body language. And I think that that's really hard sometimes because they're kind of getting sucked into, oh my gosh, we're having a baby and their adrenaline is high and maybe they're not thinking straight. So I sometimes tell my clients to have like a cue word between each other where she says something that cues him into knowing and it can just be one word. So like you said earlier, Kristen, it can be really hard to say words. So it can just be one simple word and that kind of cues him into knowing, okay, things are happening too fast. We need to slow down. And just to kind of stop everything and say, can we have five minutes to discuss what's going on? What would they say? Well, for instance, one of my clients chose the word pineapple. That was her code word to cue her husband into knowing that she was uncomfortable. And then I tell the partner to say something along the lines of, she's uncomfortable right now. We need to slow down and talk about what's going on. It's important that the partner knows what's important to his wife or his partner. Or their wife or their partner. Yeah, sorry. What I was thinking was that they would just slow everything down. Trauma starts happening when you feel like things are being done to you and it's not your choice. That's always the biggest thing I hear my clients say is, I just want to be heard. I want it to be my decision. If we get a repeat cesarean or you know, whatever it is, I want it to be my choice and that I knew my choices and that that informed consent was happening. So really prepping clients to understand what informed consent looks like and when that isn't happening, to be able to slow things down with their keyword, I have found is kind of helpful for my clients. That she feels like she has kind of a lifeline to be able to use in those situations. Another thing is just not to make it kind of sound scary, but sometimes when things are happening, it can feel like an assault. For instance, if you come in and they want to check you and they want you to lay down on the bed, you may have nurses kind of pulling on you or trying to get you to go where they want you to go. And that can feel very violating when you're in labor. So things like I do not consent, those are important words to use when you feel like your human rights are being violated. And then I cue the partner then, if she's saying I do not consent, that's your cue to say something along the lines of, hey, put out your hand, say stop. This is now assault if you continue. And partners kind of look at me like I'm crazy at this point, like, whoa, assault, like that's a crazy word to use. But I reframe it. So in our culture, when we think of birth, we don't think that assault happens. Like most people don't think that's a thing. So I kind of reframe it and say, well, if you were walking down the street and someone pushed you down and you said, please stop touching me, that would be assault if they continued. And then they're like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. Just a really simple way to think about it is assault is what happens when consent is not obtained. Exactly. So yeah, sometimes taking it out of the birth room and putting it in a different scenario can be helpful for partners to understand what's happening. Because that does, I think, sound very like jarring to hear for people. Mm-hmm. It's one of those really funny kind of situations where the intent may not be there, but the impact is there. So you might have, or you often really have a staff person or a provider who there the intent is not to harm or cause trauma or assault. That is not the, that is not the intent. In fact, often it is extremely well-meaning and it's, I want to help you by checking you whether or not I've gotten permission, you know, 
I want to put it that way to people so they understand that like assault can happen in a very well-meaning way. We're not trying to like demonize anyone. I think what we're talking about is a really specific socialization and culture in labor and delivery where there are traditions that I think are really outdated. And this goes back a hundred years to how, when we started putting birth in the hospital, I want you to think about this. Women didn't have the right to vote a hundred years ago when like the hospital based birth model was being developed. And in a lot of ways, women and birthing people still are not fully treated as if they have their most basic rights in labor and delivery. And it is a culture thing. It is not an intent thing. It is not people trying to hurt other people for the most part. It is just the way things have been and the way they continue to be. I also think that's an important point just because we don't want people to think they're walking into a situation where people are trying to hurt them. Like this is some kind of conflict or battle or fight or something like that. It's not. I'm, I'm trying to relate this outside the birth room. I'm thinking about, and this is going to sound silly, but I'm thinking about when I was little and my older relatives used to pinch my cheeks so hard, it hurt, right? And they were like, oh, my little peach Adita. And they would grab my cheeks. And I, re- I, to this day, I remember the feeling. It hurt. They pinched so hard and they would like kind of jiggle your head with your cheek and it hurts so bad. And I remember I was, you know, two, three, four years old, five years old when this happened. And I still remember that feeling. And obviously there was nothing but like love and affection behind that, but it hurt. (laughs) And I remember that hurt now. And I do remember the feeling of, oh, you're not allowed to say no, right? You have to let them pinch your cheek and jiggle your whole head with your cheek. I hope that like makes a little bit of sense for people that also in this situation, you get to say, nope, I do not want you touching my cheek. (laughs) Um, We are, you know, now we're adults, you know, most, Mm -hmm. most people who are listening are adults and you do have the right to decide what happens to your body. And that includes what happens to your baby when your baby is inside your body. I, you know, I don't know. That might have been kind of a silly example, but no, I think it was great. I hope it makes a little bit of sense to people. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I was saying earlier about how it doesn't make them a bad person, you know, separating that line between this emotional thing that you have going on with these are my needs right now and you're not respecting that. That doesn't make me hate you personally. It has nothing to do with our personal relationship. You're probably a fantastic L&D nurse. You're probably stressed out right now. You may have 5 million other people you're running around to, but right now you're just not respecting my needs. If, if you're not respecting it, we kind of need to escalate the language a little bit to get your attention. So that's how I explain it. Yeah, I think that's great. I, you know, I also think that, there, you know, there's a sense of urgency now knowing that for some time, there has been childbirth education and doula support to fill in some of these cracks. And I think we try to talk about it in a really diplomatic way Mm. for the most part, even when we're seeing and hearing about things that are abusive and, and really, really, truly unacceptable. And now there is sort of like, at least for me, I'm feeling a little bit more of like, okay, the gloves are off. Like we have to be really, we have to be really honest with people about the realities of the system. And maybe we should do that more in general because I I hate feeling like people don't understand or don't have a clue about what they're walking into. I tell my clients, we're not expecting this. We're not expecting you to get pushed down on a bed and we're not expecting this care, but we're prepping for every scenario, like I said, because we don't want to not prepare for it and then for it to happen and you to be blindsided by it. And I feel like it reduces the fear. It reduces the anxiety. It's almost like exposure therapy. When you talk about, okay, this is a possibility. If this happens, this is what we're going to do. That's not fear mongering. That's actually Mm -hmm. reducing the fear for people. I think that's really important. You know, it's one of the reasons I have this one handout that's about communication in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And 
right at the top, it says practice, practice, practice. Because the more you normalize this for yourself and you almost create like some memory around it for yourself, the less, the less traumatic it feels. The more it feels like I can handle this. I am prepared for this. This is okay. And now my brain can switch to even higher needs, not just like the basic sort of like survival needs, but can, you know, now shift into things that you're able to focus on more when you're in a less fearful place and those other needs all the way up to, you know, like you said, Mary, at the, at the beginning about dimming the lights or, you know, whatever the thing was that is seemingly so trivial, but it's not <laughs> when you're the person giving birth, right. you know? And I think that brings it full circle back to this conversation and how it began around helping expectant parents now cope with the unknown by understanding their needs and learning how to advocate for themselves, even in this way, to practice saying, you know, if my doula is not there, my partner is staying. And these are basic needs. And this is what I need. And that's what I need to just keep practicing and not not cave into feeling like this is hospital protocol, but it's the same thing. No, I, I don't want a vaginal exam now. No, I don't want my partner to leave. Not anticipate it, but to prepare for it, unless you know in advance that this particular hospital is not accepting doulas or partners. And you have to really yeah. hunker down, but it's a great, it's an important life skill. Really important. Mm -hmm. Well, and specifically relative to this pandemic, I want to point people to evidence-based births resource on COVID-19 because mm -hmm. they are continuously keeping up with the research and the evidence that's coming out. And something I wanted to mention to people is that there are discrepancies between what the World Health Organization is recommending and what the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are mm -hmm. recommending in the U.S. and what is being done in other countries. So there, there is some policy level wiggle room there. I noticed the other day, maybe two days ago, and today is March 24th. So that would have been, you know, maybe about the 22nd or something, maybe 20th, that the World Health Organization was putting up on Twitter, all these little memes about how in pregnancy, people that have human rights in pregnancy and in birth mm -hmm. and they have a right to support and you know not being separated from their newborn and i thought well isn't that interesting i mean it looks like you know somebody over there is realizing that certain countries or facilities or whatever are choosing to in interpret guidelines in maybe like the most strict way possible which mm -hmm. would be no partners, no support people, immediate separation from the newborn, no breastfeeding. And the World Health Organization is going, oh, hang on, we didn't actually say that. <laughs> so you all might be deciding this based on, you know, I'm not really sure what, but, you know, this is not carved in stone. This isn't necessarily the most prudent course of action. And there is so much we don't know right now. And I certainly don't mean to downplay risks or anything like that. But we have to remember that there is a bigger picture. When we look at risks and benefits in birth, which I think is true all the time, different people see different things. And families often see the long-term effects a lot more clearly than acute care providers. Like an example would be, you know, Mary said she has a client who's had, I think, two previous C-sections and is planning on having a vaginal birth after this. So that's like a really great example of immediate short-term risks and benefits versus long-term. So one of the long-term risks that isn't often talked about with your very first cesarean is that if you have a cesarean there's like a nine in 10 chance that all of your future children will be born by cesarean. It's a whole other topic why that is, but it is not because that is what national guidelines say or evidence supports. Having multiple cesareans carries pretty serious risks. It's a different calculation to have one child 
by cesarean and never have any more children than it is to have four children or five children and have them by cesarean. The risks to those future babies are higher. And the risks to the mom are much, much higher. So that's just one place where we see kind of like, wow, people see this differently. For a provider, it might be, listen, I feel really confident about doing the safest cesarean possible. And this feels comfortable to me. And I feel like I can safely get you through this cesarean. And I feel good about that. But the perspective of the mother might be, I mean, that's okay for you, but I want to have three more children after this, or even two, you know, whatever it is. So I'm looking at this a little bit differently. That's just one little tiny example. But when we're talking about these policies around partners, separation, breastfeeding in the current crisis. I do think it's important for parents to realize that the evidence is changing. Not everyone is interpreting it exactly the same way. And your wishes and plans and preferences absolutely do matter. And actually one last point on that, the CDC absolutely has written into their guidelines that the wishes of the birthing person need to be taken into account. So that absolutely is in there. Um, A recommendation is not a law and parents absolutely have the right to be informed, to do research, to have conversations, to have extensive conversations with their care providers about what is the best course of action for them. So feel, feel good about that. And it is still your birth. It is still your baby. You will be taking this baby home for the next 18 years and you will be making those decisions. And ultimately you are also the only ones who can assess what risk means to you. You can look at all the material about assessment of risk by other organizations, but when it comes down to it, you as the expectant parents are the only ones who can really assess what risk means to you and move from there. Parents, your feelings and thoughts and belief system is so important. I feel like people are thinking, oh, I don't know what to do now. I just want to encourage people that your feelings about your birth are really important and your goals, whether that's to have skin to skin, that's important. That should be respected and you should hold on to it. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. I really, really appreciate you coming on. I'm sorry that it happened to be in the middle of this just like unprecedented situation around the world. You know, this wasn't what we had originally planned on talking about, but I think it's important. Um, I think the timing was great that both of you have experience now dealing with this. And Lisa, you know, had already had virtual doula experience. And I hope that we can like serve our community with this information. And I really genuinely hope it's helpful to people please do feel free to contact the show at birthaloudradio at gmail.com with reflections or questions or comments. And even if you have questions or comments for our guests, I will be sure to get that to them. Yeah, I guess let's just hang in there. This is not going to last forever. It's going to be tough for a while. You know, there are so many unknowns, but at some point this, this crisis is, is not going to last forever. And What we can do in the meantime is focus on what we actually have control over and connect and communicate with each other as much as possible because we're all kind of going through a collective trauma. (laughs) None of us is alone, even though it can really feel that way sometimes. We're not. And there is support. It's what we do. Yeah, and yeah. there's so many doulas right now that are they're offering virtual birth classes and virtual support. There's a lot of support out there. Mm-hmm. I would encourage families to Google local doulas and find out what they're offering. Yeah, We're here I, for you. I think evidence-based birth is actually coming out with a list of virtual doulas as well. So that's another really great resource. The last thing I wanted to mention was that I actually had planned to re-release a really short video course that I have called Three Things Every Parent Needs to Know About Hospital Birth. And 
uh, that was already on my calendar. And then this happened <laughs> and I was like, oh boy, <laughs> we need to really get on that. So I've been updating the materials and I'm going to continue to do that this week um, based on recent events. And that is, I think, going to be a really valuable resource for people and I'm making it available to educators and doulas Great. on a, um, a licensing basis so that you can purchase a bunch of those viewings to that course at a really, really deep discount and then make that available to people. So that's great. Thank you, Kristen. That's very helpful. Appreciate it. Thank you both again. Good to see you, Mary. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kristen. And good to see you, Lisa. Be well, everyone. Hi, this is Kristen. I don't know if you've noticed, but there aren't a lot of shows like this one out there. And one big reason is it has never been my goal to get corporate or mainstream ad money. Nope. We are supported by folks who are part of the change. In fact, the show you're listening to now is made possible by Evidence-Based Birth, your go-to source for high-quality, unbiased information on the latest evidence-based care practices for childbirth. We love evidence-based birth for its radical approach to changing maternity care, taking the evidence out of paywall journals and translating it right into the hands of parents, birth workers, and medical professionals so they can make change from the ground up. Like evidence-based birth, you can help keep Birth Aloud Radio an independent voice challenging a powerful status quo. Email us at birthaloudradio at gmail.com to find out how. Again, that's birthaloudradio at gmail.com.